Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. Yeah. If you're new, thanks so much for being here. We are so glad you are here. And uh, I want to share a little story with you. About 25 years ago, something happened to me. I had a midlife crisis. Has anybody else ever had a midlife crisis? Nobody's raising their hands. Because <laughs> you identify midlife crisis with something really bad. Well, let me tell you what. I did not leave my wife. I did not start wearing gold jewelry. I did not um, unbutton my shirt down to my uh, uh, belly button. You've seen some guys do that. You know, the hair is sticking out. like gross. Anyway, I didn't do that. I didn't go to uh, 80s dance clubs. But I did this. I bought a Jeep. A Jeep Wrangler. How many, of you, how many of you have had a Jeep Wrangler? Let me see. Keep your hands up. Okay, keep them up. There's one or two. Oh, three. Okay, you got three Jeep. Yeah, you know how fun you guys do to have a Wrangler, how much fun it is. Now, my Wrangler was actually more cool than this one. This is not an actual picture of it. It was a red Wrangler. This is the year. Uh, this, yeah, I kind of gave that away there. Anyway, I had big old fat tires. I had silver Nerf bars here, here, and on the back. I had a fancy cover for the spare tire. I even had a hard top I bought, and I had this winch I put in my garage where I could winch it up and then put it back down, you know, when it was colder. Now, what Cheryl and I would do sometimes when life would get stressed, we would say, we need some Jeep therapy. So we would take the top off and we'd just go riding around in that Jeep. Now we had some friends that we would call sometimes and say, Hey, are you stressed? Yeah, let's go for some Jeep therapy. So we would do that. Now about a month in, a friend of mine who, who had a Jeep, he said, Listen, you got to take it like out in real off-road areas where it's like muddy and stuff like that. So okay, well yeah, Jeeps have to get muddy to really break them in. So I did that and, and you saw that. Here's what happened. Yeah. Now that's not the picture, uh, actual picture, but that's exactly what happened to us. We got stuck in a deep rut. Now he had a brother who also had a vehicle. And you can see right back here, there's another Jeep. You know what that Jeep is doing? Is winching out the Jeep that's stuck in a rut. So I realized you need to be real careful when you go off-roading so you don't get stuck in a rut. Now the ideas of a rut, you know, sometimes we get caught in a spiritual rut, don't we? We probably all experienced being in a spiritual rut. Now, here's a question I want to, to, you to ask yourself. How does somebody feel and act when they're in a spiritual rut? Just think about that. Answer that to yourself. What happens in a person? You know, their behavior, their attitudes, their feelings. What happens? Now, I did this last week. I want you to share with the person next to you how you observed when others have been caught in a spiritual rut, what kind of behaviors and attitudes and, and emotions surface. So share with the person next to you, take about 30 seconds for this, and I'm going to ask for some responses, okay? Do that now. If you have to get up and walk around and go to somebody, that's fine. OK, 
Okay, you guys are having some good conversation here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out in the audience here, and I'm going to ask a couple of you to share what you heard the other person say, or what, what you came up with, you know, how you feel, what a person may do in a spiritual rut. So a couple over here. What happens when somebody gets in a spiritual rut? There's no wrong answer. What's that? No zest for life. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, no zest for life. Somebody else. Frustrated. Frustrated. Yeah. Somebody else over in this section. What's that? Stop, Stop going to church. Yeah, that's right, Hubert. That's right. All right, how about here? A couple more people. What happens when someone gets in a rut? Depression. Depression. You are right on. Yes, you are right on. One more out over here. Anxiety, yes, yes. Now, who is that over here? What's that? Is it impatient or lazy? Impatient or lazy, yeah. Just watch uh, Netflix for 12 hours straight or something like that. <laughs> yeah. All right, one more here. What? Okay. What's that? Feeling disconnected. Feeling disconnected, yes, yes. We all. Now, there's one more back, back there. Yeah. What's that? They don't read their Bible, yes. All of these are the kinds of things that happen when we get in a spiritual rut. Now, I wrote down a few things. You guys already read my notes, I think. Let's see here. We lose perspective. That can happen. Um, depression. Somebody mentioned depression, anxiety. Uh, spiritual disciplines. Like, it's almost like, what's the use, you know? Spiritual disciplines can wane. Uh, begin to doubt God more. Our relationships get frayed. You get distant from other relationships. Well, we're going to be in series, continuing our series today on Philippians, and we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul said about getting out of spiritual ruts. Now, today's a one-point message. So if you're taking notes, there is one point. Now, here's today's big idea. Read it to yourself. So I'm going to connect this whole idea of being in a spiritual rut with a spiritual resume. That when you're in a rut, you need to look at your spiritual resume and make sure the right things are on that spiritual resume. Now, I'm going to come back to the resume idea in a minute, but I want to kind of create a context here. From the beginning, God's plan was to uh, introduce redemption to God's, uh, to the Hebrew people. That's the way, the kind of the sequence in, in the, the Jewish people first and the non-Jewish people called Gentiles. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Then he gives this sequence, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The Gentile is a term for non-Jew. Now, some context here. When the apostle Peter took the gospel to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, it caused a big uproar because many thought that you had to first become a Jew before, a Gentile, a Jew before you could become a Christian. Peter explained, that's not the gospel. That's not the way God de designed it. So, okay, matter settled, right? No, the matter was not settled. God then had Paul to continue communicating and telling the gospel to the non-Jew, the Gentile. And he was saying that we don't have to submit to, to Jewish rules, Old Testament rules to have a relationship with God. And that was a conflict caused problems. So the leaders gathered together. Acts 15 tells us they gathered together and they confirmed and affirmed that you did not 
first have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You thought, well, maybe the matter's settled now. No. When the Apostle Paul took his missionary journeys to the Mediterranean, there were actually a group of people who followed Paul around and dogged him and tried to take away true converts. What they were doing, they were mixing law with grace. And we call them Judaizers. That's what they were called. That's the term given to them. So that provides context for the passage we're going to look at this morning. So if you want to get your Bibles or your Bible app, we're going to be in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So if you want to turn there, just follow along. I'm going to read this. Let's stand as I read Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Okay? So he says, he writes, Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. So he's writing something, repeating something here. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Now these are not like your pets. I'll explain this in a minute. For those men, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. More about that in a minute. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I, Paul, I have more. Then he makes this, gives us this list here. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. So he's just spitting out these qualifications as he describes it. But, this is where he kind of turns his thinking here. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider, what does he say? Loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, what does he say? Rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, you can have a seat now. So we're going to unpack that. And we're going to go through this passage to discover what is supposed to be on our spiritual resume. So let's unpack this passage here. So he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Remember, a key theme in this whole book is what? It was joy. Shows up a whole bunch, like 16 times to use the word joy, a related word. Uh, sometimes preachers are guilty of in a message saying, finally, and it not being finally. It's like this little girl, this pastor would do this a lot. And uh, this girl asked her, and he said, Daddy, what, what does the preacher mean when he says, finally? Her, her dad says, absolutely nothing. So, so hopefully I won't get caught in that. All right. Then he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. What's he talking about? He's probably talking about some other writings that we don't have. That's why he says the same things. 
And this is important to understand who I'm about to share with you. It's a learning principle. Repeating truth is the way we learn. Repeating anything is the way we learn. Any teachers in here? Teachers? Yeah, I see some teachers out there. Yeah, you know, you got to re- repeat or the student is not going to learn. Same for all of us. Learning spiritual truth, learning truth in school, it has to be repeated. This is the way God has wired our brains to learn. We rewire our brains when stuff is repeated. So here's what I'm saying. When you come into a message, and let's say the title of the passage, you think, well, I have read that one before. Well, I have seen that. I've heard this before. Don't do that. Because what you need is to hear that repeated so that it gets embedded more into your mind and your soul and your heart. So what Paul next does, he kind of turns the rhetoric back on those Judaizers. And here's what he says. Remember the Judaizers were those who said it was Jesus plus something. That is grace plus a little law. That's not the case. It is not grace plus law. Then he says, he says, watch out for those dogs. Now, dogs here is not like our little pets. We have a little dog named Sammy. I think I've showed you pictures of him. He's a designer dog. He's a Morky. That's what they call him, designer dog. Put two different breeds together and you get this dog. He's real cute, real sweet, except he barks a lot. That's not how he's referring to dogs here. In those days, dogs were mongrels. They were just like those dogs you see just kind of wander on the freeway. That's what they were. In fact, they've done some archaeological digs. And in those digs, they've actually found signs in Greek to say, watch out for the dogs. So if you use the word dog for somebody, that was not uh, a compliment. In fact, some of the Jewish uh, writers would actually, Jewish teachers would actually call Gentiles dogs. So it was really a cut. Now, for the legalists, what he says for, for this, he says next, those men who do evil... Those mutilators of the flesh. Now, what's he talking about? For the legalist, real spirituality, from their perspective, was all outward. It's what you did. What you look like to others. Your behavior on the outside. They said that you had to do something to be saved. That is to have relationship with God. You had to do, go through the, all these rituals. In this case, they were saying you had to be circumcised. Now, go back in the Old Testament. On the eighth day after the little boy was, was born, he was circumcised in the temple. The original reason for circumcision, first done to Abraham, it was meant to be a symbol of his covenant relationship with his people. So this was preparatory for the coming Messiah. And when Jesus came, the Old Testament was fulfilled. So we don't dismiss the Old Testament. You may hear sometimes a pretty famous pastor in the U.S. is almost dismissing the Old Testament. We don't dismiss the Old Testament. It's part of the Bible. It prepares us and teaches us about the coming Messiah. Since Jesus came, we no longer have to practice those uh, legalistic rituals practiced in the Old Testament. So circumcision, as he's describing in here, was something only done physically to a man's body. Paul then parodies the Judaizers' insistence on doing this by sarcastically saying, you're mutilating the flesh. In reality, he's saying if you want to be in a special relationship with God, you need something more than something done to your body. You need a certain kind of a heart. You need a circumcision of the heart. Paul wrote this in Romans. He says circumcision is one of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. What was the written code? The Old Testament law. 
So he writes here back in Philippians. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. Since circumcision is something done to the heart, not physically, but spiritually done to the heart, he then lists three indicators that a person really is a follower of Jesus. Here's the first indicator. He speaks of them worshiping it. Wasn't this worship pretty amazing this morning? Wow, you just really sense God's presence. That's part of worship. Do you know what worship really is? It's a 24-7 life of following Jesus. That's what worship is. Now, we corporately do what we do on Sunday mornings because it's a very important part to do corporately. So here's the number one. We worship by the Spirit of God. It's not outward ritual. Here's the second thing. Number two is that we glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, we understand that our hope and our true satisfaction is in Christ alone, not to religious conformity. Then he says, number three, number three is we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, what is flesh? Flesh refers refers to what a person does outside of Christ. Now, with that background in mind, let's go to resumes, okay? We're going to use this metaphor of resume. Remember the big idea? The big idea is this. When you're stuck in a spiritual rut, you need to remember what's on your spiritual resume or it's what should be on your spiritual resume. Now think about a resume. If you are applying for a job, a new job, a resume is almost always required. If you are a student and you went again to a college or university, you produce something like a resume, CV, there are different terms for them. What is on a resume? What's the purpose of a resume? To put your best foot forward, right? You want to look good. You put your education. You put your experience. You put your accomplishments. And why are you doing that? Because you're an outsider and you want to get inside that company. Or you're an outsider to that university. You want to get inside into that university. That's what a resume is all about. We kind of intuitively understand that. Well, I did a little bit of research. And I found some very interesting resumes online. This one, let me go back here. Um, This is from Eric. His objective, now these are actual resumes. To claw my way to the top by any means necessary. His personal attributes, cat-like reflexes, possible ESP, horse-like laugh, can moonwalk quite well. This was on a resume, folks. Experience. He had two two experiences he put as experience. I'm quite experienced with the McDonald's menu and life coach. How would you want Eric to be, who would want Eric to be a life coach? So that's Eric. Now, here's another one. This is what I call the bad spelling resume right here. Can you see that? That's supposed to mean science museum. Tim Hortians. (laughs) Filinging files. And I love this one. Hanging with my friends. I don't think he's going to get a job. Now, this next one, I know you may not believe what this, this guy put his picture on his resume. All right. This is the picture. This is Ricky. <laughs> he didn't get a job. I can guarantee you. Now we laugh at that. You know, we don't know who is dumb enough to do that. Well, apparently there are some people that do that. But you know what? 
we also actually have some what I call subtle or unconscious resumes. So that we can, remember we talked about a resume gets you in somewhere. We have these subtle resumes that we put on people and ourselves so that we can get into that group. That we can get accepted by that group. Like, well, yeah, I've got to dress a certain way to get accepted by that group. Or use certain language or must look a certain way or... Even religious lingo, use the appropriate religious lingo so I fit in that religious group. Let me say, pastors aren't immune to these kind of subtle resumes. Pastors, we update our resume every Sunday afternoon. You understand what I'm saying? We, we ask ourselves, how's the attendance like right now? Oh, well, attendance is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. How was offering? It was up, down, Ooh. Did people like it? Were they paying attention to like the sermon, like the music? So all of us have these subtle resumes, of ways we're supposed to act so we can feel good about ourselves and so that our performance allows us to get into that particular group. Now, next the Apostle Paul details his extensive spiritual resume and man, was it a good one. But he qualifies it a bit. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, this is on his spiritual resume, if anyone else thinks he or she has the reasons to put confidence in the flesh. So what he's really saying here is that if spiritual works are the standards by which we are ultimately measured, that those are the door through which we can walk through to have a relationship with God, let me tell you what, I can play this game better than any of you can and then he lists all these qualities on his spiritual resume. So let's kind of unpack these. Just read that to yourself for a minute. So he lists, I think, seven here. Uh, circumcised of the people of Israel. It says of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, a Pharisee persecuting the church related to zeal. And then what he says are, is faultless. Now, here are their credentials. Let me unpack them real quickly. When he says circumcised on the eighth day, he means basically that he was not a proselyte from paganism. He wasn't a later in life conversion to Judaism. It started from birth because his parents had him dedicated and circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says the people of Israel, the uh, the, the Hebrew people actually had an insider term for themselves called the people of Israel or the children of Israel. So he was a total insider. He speaks of the tribe of Benjamin. When there was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in 930 BC, only two tribes remained faithful to King David. So he said, I'm really an insider because of that. Then he says... A Hebrew of Hebrews. Throughout Israel's history, uh, nations have conquered them and, and, and displaced many, many Jewish people in different parts of the world. So they lost their culture and they lost their language. Paul's saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I speak Hebrew. And I got my Jewish ancestry from both of my parents. I'm not of mixed race, he's saying. Then he says, I'm a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, a Pharisee was the most orthodox of all the Jewish parties. And they were the most zealous about keeping the Old Testament law. They were the, the spiritual athletes in Judaism. They had reached the zenith, the height, maybe 6,000 of them. He was one of those. He reached the zenith spiritually. 
And then he says persecuting the church. He felt so much that this new sect, as he called it, Christianity, was so opposed to Judaism that he even killed people. And then he says, for legalistic righteousness, faultless, he's not saying that I obeyed every single one of the 613 laws perfectly. But if you judged it by human standards, I would be seen as blameless and exemplary. So he lists all of these as if he's saying to those Judaizers, there, take that. Can you improve on that? That's what he's doing here. Let's go back to think about our spiritual resumes. What kinds of things might be on somebody's spiritual resume? Just, just think in your mind. What might be on your spiritual resume? Let me add a list here, okay? You probably can come up with more than what I've come up with. Okay, I'm a good person. I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've been baptized. I come from a Christian family. I tithe. I'm a moral person. I'm a hard worker. I'm in the right political party. I'm nice to people. I've been a member of the church 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I'm a Calvinist. I'm not. I'm a premillennialist. I'm not. I love the old hymns. I don't. I'm a Baptist. I'm not. I don't have a tattoo or body piercing. I do. I wear a tie to church. I don't. And on and on and on. We can have these kinds of things on our spiritual resumes. Here's some others. I'm white. I'm not. I don't drink. I do. And we could probably list a thousand things. Now, I want to go a step further as we think about this spiritual resume. What do you, and I'll include myself in that question as well, subtly or not so subtly think should be on that person's spiritual resume? Or that person? Or that person? Or that person? Let's see what Paul said about his stellar resume. Here's what he said. He says, but whatever it was to my profit, this is uh, for you accountants, this is an accounting term, you know, credits and debits. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And he amplifies on that when he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish. He's saying that all those credits on his spiritual resume were actually a detriment to his relationship, to having a relationship with God. They did not provide him a true righteousness. By trusting in human performance, which he had, he had failed to make any progress toward true righteousness that he aspired to. And he piles these descriptions on each one, one after the other. He says, lost, everything a loss and rubbish. And I'm going to tell you what this word means here because you need to understand so you can understand how strong he's rejecting these. That's doggy do. That's what that word means in the original language. Now, he, he's not belittling being Jewish. He's not coming down on his parents. His parents tried to raise him right. But he is saying that everything on his spiritual resume counted for nothing as being a door to get to God, to know God. In fact, it did the absolute opposite. He discovered that confidence in his spiritual resume to prove himself worthy to God actually, in effect, separated him. And why? Because it kicked out the door humility. It was all about me and what I did. Well, for Paul, it was no contest. He says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this little phrase here, surpassing greatness, it's really a cool word. I pulled out a quote from one of the... Uh, commentators I use, he says this. He's kind of transliterating this. I have found the super thing 
I have found something so brilliant, the things that used to control me no longer have any power over me. The things that used to drive me no longer have any influence and control over me. And here's what another scholar said. He said, God looks at me through the death of his son and he declares me just. Now think about that. With all of our sin, all the stuff in our past, he looks at us through Jesus. Paul recognizes that in God's universe, the most important thing is to know God. And folks, let me say, I reiterate this. And again, you probably heard this before. Most important thing in your life is to love and know God. It is, above all things. It goes on to say in a flow of history that inevitably runs toward the judgment, there will be a final judgment. The great judgment in which only God's verdict matters to be declared righteous by this creator God, this judge, is infinitely more precious than anything else one can imagine. So you see, it's not grace plus a really nice spiritual resume. Paul says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So he explains that there are really only two kinds of righteousness. One is real righteousness through faith. One is not, uh, not real righteousness, which is through works. Did you, realize, did you know that every single other religion outside of Christianity requires that you have something on your spiritual resume to, to make it to heaven to really know God? Let me read a couple of these, a few of Buddhism says to be righteous, you seize all desires. Confucianism says to be righteous, you pursue education, reflection, and live a moral life. Hinduism says that you detach yourself from your separated ego and live in unity with the divine. Judaism says you must obey God's law. The New Age says that you should see yourself as connected to the whole divine oneness and live in concert with all of creation. And then Islam says that you should live a moral life, do good deeds, you will stand before Allah in the end, and if your deeds outweigh your bad deeds and Allah so wills it, then you will be declared righteous. You see, we all stand before God as sinners, and nothing we can do can gain righteousness before God. But it's just simply Jesus. So let's go back to our resume here. So I've reiterated this several times. What do you think is the one thing that should be on our spiritual resumes? The cross. Jesus. That's the only thing that should be on our spiritual resumes. Biblical righteousness is a right relationship with God that we don't achieve by even the best actions. It comes through faith in Christ and what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. Religion says that you need to clean up your act. Make sure you have the right stuff on your spiritual resume. But God says that Jesus plus nothing. Now where do we go with this? I think not only does the scripture says we're supposed to repent of our sins to come to faith. But you know where else we need to repent of sometimes? I think if we if we're trying to gain righteousness in God's eyes through our works. I think that requires repentance too. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, this knowing is not just a factual thing. It is to really, really, really know him. Like I know Cheryl intimately. That's what he's talking about, to know Christ, not just the facts about Jesus. So how do you get out of spiritual rut? 
make sure there's one thing on your spiritual resume. If you're in a spiritual rut, check out your spiritual resume. See what's on there. Number two, remove what shouldn't be there. And number three, turn the only one you should have on your spiritual resume. That's Jesus. So I got a final question for you. What on your spiritual resume shouldn't be there? That should go away. What on your spiritual resume shouldn't be there? Maybe you've been in church a long, long time, and this morning, like, oh my. It just clicked this morning that all of these things, and I'm a good person, I've done all these things, that is not what counts. It's only Jesus. And maybe you need to once and for all say, Jesus, I place my faith in you and nothing else for forgiveness. Maybe that's where you are. Or maybe you just kind of came today and your first time being in the church in a long time, you know, after COVID and everything. And like, this is brand new to you. Brand new to you. Well, I tell you what, there's no better day than today to come to faith in Christ. If you've never come to faith, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to do that. It's a great day to do it because we're going to have baptism afterwards and you can get baptized as a public confession of following Jesus. So in a moment, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and I'm going to pray it first and I'm going to share a very simple short prayer. And this prayer is basically a way that you tell God that I want Jesus in my life. I want to commit my life to Jesus. There's nothing magical about the specific prayer, but let me tell you what, if you really, really mean it, your life will change if you invite, as you invite Christ in. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to invite you to trust Christ. Father, I know from time to time, uh, true followers of Jesus can put stuff on our spiritual resumes, and we think that really, really counts in your eyes. And it doesn't. Just remind us, Lord, that the only thing that really counts is Jesus. And Lord, we understand that we do do good things. We do righteous things. But it's after we come to faith and it's because we love Jesus. But doing good things, being a good moral person, your, your word clearly says, this does not gain favor in your eyes, does not give us a relationship with you. So as everybody's heads bowed and eyes are closed, I, I'm going to ask you to do something before I pray. If you realize today that you need a relationship with Jesus. Maybe this is the first time it really made sense. If you realize today that I need a personal relationship with Jesus, would you simply put up your hand right now? Put up your hand. If you are here and you realize today, I need to place my faith in Jesus. I need Jesus. Anybody want to raise their hand? Anybody here today that says, I want to trust Jesus? Well, Father, I want to just pray right now for that student or that older person, that middle-aged person who's maybe at a place where today it just kind of clicked for them. I pray that they would give their heart to you and place Jesus central to their lives. And here's this simple prayer. You've never trusted Christ. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and I commit my life to Jesus. Father, my prayer would be that a student, a young person, old person, middle-aged person just now trusted you and secured their eternal destiny. Lord, remind us by your spirit to not put stuff on our spiritual resumes, but to keep your son and his work on the cross on that resume and nothing else. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.